This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligent Squad. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. On today's episode of the podcast, we're going to hear the stories behind some of the most significant hacks in the cyber world's recent history, and why we should all be more aware of our digital security and how it works. Joining us is Scott Shapiro, who is the Charles F. Southmade Professor of Law and Philosophy at Yale Law School and director of the Yale Cybersecurity Lab. Our host for this episode is Carl Miller, research director at Demos and author of the Death of the Gods, the New Global Power Grab. Here's Carl with more. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Carl Miller, and today I'm honoured to be joined by Yale Law Professor Scott Shapiro. In his recently released book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, Breaking the Internet and Five Great Hacks, he takes us on an exhilarating journey through the world of cybercrime and hacking, revealing the captivating stories behind five extraordinary hacks that have left an indelible mark on our information society. From the audacious exploits of Fancy Bear, the elite hacking unit within Russian military intelligence, to lesser-known yet equally astonishing incidents, Scott sheds light on the origins, motivations, and consequences of these remarkable cyber intrusions. Today, we'll be discussing the vulnerabilities that lie within our digital infrastructure, well, our whole lives, really, and also questioning the legal and ethical implications of these historic hacks. Scott, very, very warm welcome to you to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much, Carl. It's great to be here. All right. Well, the million-dollar question, first up... Just to get us going, what is a fancy bear, Scott, and why does it go fishing? Um, yeah, so fancy bear is the code name that was given by the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike to one of the top hacking units in Russian military intelligence, the GRU. And they are one of the two Russian intelligence units that are responsible for having hacked into the Democratic National Committee in 2016. And you chose that hack and, of course, four other major hacks to kind of take the reader in your brilliant book, actually. I've just finished it in a journey through. Um, why, why was it hacks, Scott? Why, why, why hacks and why those hacks, I guess, to kind of make the points that you wanted to in this book? Yeah. So one of the things I, I mean, I want to explain how hacking works, but in a way, it was more like the way in which neuroscientists explain how the brain works by looking at deficiencies and vulnerabilities. So I feel like the same thing, like I'm, I feel like I, I'm trying to show how our information society works by showing the ways in which it breaks down. And why I picked those five hacks is originally I had picked 25 hacks and by my literary agent said, 25 is just too much. And I said, how many? She said, I don't know, five. So I picked five, but the five that I picked, the first is kind of a natural one. It's the first internet hack in um, on November 2nd, 1988, when the graduate student, Robert Morris Jr. crashed the internet. 
Um, the next one is the Bulgarian virus factory of the early 1990s and just the story of why Bulgaria became the hot zone of virus writing in, in the world. The third is the hack of Paris Hilton's cell phone in 2005. The fourth is Fancy Bear um, and the hack of the Democratic National Committee. And the last one was the way in which three teenagers, um, American teenagers, went to war with three Israeli teenagers, built an Internet of Things botnet called Mirai and took down the Internet in October 2016. So those were the five. And I picked those five in part because they had elements of mystery to them. They were very important. And it kind of gave a sense of like one's from the 80s, one from the 90s, one's from 2000s, and the last two were the most recent. Well, we're about to dive into those hacks. And everyone, I'm going to unapologetically get Scott to use them to tell us how stuff actually works. Because at least to me, that's one of the real themes running through the book is actually revealing the things that we often shy away from that are really, really important. But before we do that, Scott, just a question about you first. So you, of course, have this kind of very, very interestingly varied kind of background and and and, and kind of academic career, you know, partly law, partly philosophy, partly technology. Talk to me a bit about that. You know, how, how, how do you kind of use that to, I guess, bring the humanities into tech or the tech into humanities or bundle them all up together? Yeah, sure. So I started out when I was a young boy, like 12, 13, 14, the personal computer revolution came about and started playing with these personal computers in school. And then my parents bought me an Apple II. And I just started playing it, studied it in college, had a computer company where I built databases. And then um, right when the World Wide Web came online, I decided that this was the time to switch from technology. I went to law school and um, I graduated. And then I realized I did not want to be a lawyer. I mean, I'm a lawyer, but not I didn't want to practice law. So I went and got a PhD in philosophy and spent time doing legal philosophy and then the history of war. And then I just, for the last six, seven years, I was really interested in what the next stage of war was, what the next stage of crime was. And that led me to go back to my early intellectual fascination with technology. And now I had like law and philosophy as a background from which to understand it. And I, one of the things that maybe we'll talk about is that I learned that in some sense, the technology is what that brought me back into it. And I love it. And I explained it in the book. I came to the conclusion that technology is in some sense, the least interesting part of um, our information society. And I, I guess that actually brings us on to one of the great coinages of the book, kind of down code, up code and meta code, you know, you, you blending all of those together to, to kind of explain these hacks. What, what do you mean by each of those? So down code, imagine you're on, your fingers are on your keyboard. Down code is all the code below your fingertips, the application, your operating system, the firmware and your router, all that stuff. Up code is all the norms and rules above your fingertips. So your personal ethics, the law, social norms, terms of service of websites, every, all the stuff that give human beings incentives to act in certain ways. So people normally focus on the down code when they talk about cybersecurity, because obviously hacking is a technical activity. And so one of the arguments in the book, one of the main arguments in the book is that actually down code is not where the real action is happening, it's happening in the up code and that we should be focusing on changing the rules that give coders and users incentives to act in ways that are vulnerable. Metacode refers to 
like the code of code, philosophical principles that make a physical computing devices, especially general computing devices possible. The fact that we live in a world that has about 20 billion digital devices now, that's only possible because the world is, so to speak, metaphysically set up in such a way that that makes computers possible. And what I try to show in the book is that uh, hackers not only hack the down code, but what they're really doing is they're exploiting philosophical principles of computation to, to exploit the very things that make general computing possible, diverting them so as to make hacking possible. Okay, so before we jump into the hacks, just one last dwelling point, I think I'd like to talk to you about, Scott, is the hackers. So maybe a kind of piece of upcode of those listening to this will be a particular vision of the hacker, maybe wearing a hoodie, hunched in like a darkened basement or an attic, you know, maybe green screen computer, maybe they're feverishly typing in binary code as they kind of run rings around the kind of witless establishment around them. Like how, <laughs> you know, what do people, what do people do with that kind of idea? Yeah, I, I think that is exactly the stereotype. It's the thing you see in the movies all the time. And I think it's, it not only is it inaccurate, but it's pernicious and it leads us to act in certain ways that I think are socially counterproductive. So the stereotype that you mentioned is exactly right. A lone wolf, maybe neurodivergent, uh, maybe has like real mental health problems, kind of romantic, a loner figure. And that is in fact not true. You know, uh, hackers can have like the rest of us, um, you can have a different kind of psychological profiles. But more importantly, one of the most important things to understand about hackers is that they're very social. Their sociality really exists more in the online space than in the, so to speak, in the real world space, in the meat space. And so the idea is that the motivation for hackers is intensely what we would call clout, what we would call um, elite status. They really care about what their peers think of them. And that actually is very important in terms of remediation. That is, if we're trying to get hackers to stop engaging in criminal activities, we have to assume that they are being motivated by their peer group. And one way to deal with that is to substitute a different kind of peer group for them, different kinds of mentors that can lead them more into the so-called white hat space as opposed to the black hat space. We have to understand who these people are if we want to understand how to either deter them or, more importantly, rehabilitate them. All right. Well, hack number one then. So you've already mentioned him, Robert Morris Jr. I, th I think he's, he's a hacker, Scott, that at least I get the sense you're the most sympathetic to of all the hackers in the book. Is that right? Um, well, I, I feel I feel sympathetic to lots of them, but certainly Robert Morris Jr. I, I'm the same age as he is. He's a he's a tenured professor now at MIT. His father worked in the same place that my father worked um, at Bell Labs, and uh, I was obsessed with Unix. He was obsessed with Unix, the operating system that Bell Labs had written. 
And, you know, as a proto dissertation experiment, he wrote a self-replicating program, uh, what we now call a computer worm, and he accidentally crashed the internet, then ended up put on trial and then being the first person to be convicted. And I really feel for for him because he didn't mean to do it. Things just got out of control. Imagine a nightmare of like being on trial for the next two years. And he basically ruined his father's career because his father at the time was the chief scientist for the National Security Agency for cybersecurity. So, I mean, just everything about it was just an absolute disaster. And I feel, I really feel for him. And what did his hack show us? Because this is kind of pre-internet, isn't it? So this is this is showing us an, an older vulnerability, even in the internet. Yeah, it wasn't pre-internet. Um, it was pre-web. Sorry, pre-web and pre-like kind of mass commercial adoption. Yes, exactly. So, so what is the internet? It's a network of networks. So the internet had been developed late sixties, early seventies. Kind of comes online um, in the seventies and the eighties. But it's really a way in which research institutions mainly universities communicate with each other. The web, which is, you know, what we use with browsers is that's invented in, in 89, but it, the first browsers and point and click browsers come in in 93. This is definitely before that, but it, the internet is the main uh, delivery mechanism that we still use and the protocols that they use then TCP IP transmission control protocol and internet protocol, the things we still use, everything is built on top of that. And so what Robert Morris Jr.'s worm showed was that it's not so much that the internet itself is insecure, but what the internet is, is it's a giant delivery mechanism. It's like the train system and they don't inspect packages. The mail doesn't inspect packages. The internet doesn't inspect packages all the security, all the intelligence is pushed to the endpoints. And one of the things that Robert Morris Jr. showed was that if you have a system which pushes all the security to the endpoints, then your endpoints had better be secure or else you're going to get a disaster. And in fact, the endpoints were unbelievably insecure and you got a disaster. And that's what it showed us. What it showed us was that the internet is a system which is smart on the outside, dumb on the inside. And if you're the outside parts, our phones, our laptops, our smart toasters, if they're not secure, we're not going to be secure. So from Robert Morris Jr., then there's Dark Avenger and the perhaps somewhat improbable epicenter of it seems, at least for a while, virus writing in Bulgaria. So how did Bulgaria become, at least for a time, this kind of global capital for, for malware and, and, and this kind of strange shadowy figure, you know, that was at the heart of all of it? So every hack that I dealt with, it kind of had some mystery to me, at least. And so that, that was the mystery. How is Bulgaria the capital of virus writing in the world? And why is this guy, well, this a they, we don't know who they are, Dark Avenger. How is this group person um, the best virus writer in the world? How, why are they in Bulgaria? And so this story is an upcode story. So in the early 1980s, the Soviet bloc decides that Bulgaria is going to be the Silicon Valley of the East. They spend an enormous amount of time and money not building computers, but reverse engineering computers. They take IBMs and Apples from the West and they reverse engineer them and put out 
their own clones. And this reverse engineering turns out to be a really good way of writing viruses because you reverse engineer certain programs and then you figure out how to insert viruses. It's also a story of underemployed young men. So you have these people who um, have been educated in the engineering fields and they're really good at what they do. The wall falls, the economy's in a shambles. And so they use they use virus writing as a way of um, self-expression and, um, as I said before, trying to establish clout and elite status as 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 hackers. And so from the 80s, we move into the 90s and mass adoption of the Internet and a kind of company that. It seems to me, you know, doesn't escape criticism for you is Microsoft, you know, initially caught flat footed, panics, doesn't think the Internet's going to be this commercial engine that it is. And then kind of reacts by like stuffing every feature and every program with all these with, with all this Internet enabled stuff, you know, without really thinking about security, endpoint protection or any of that. So take us into what that causes. And again, let's not shy away from some of the explanations here. SQL injection, especially I know you go in the book and describe how that was used with um, uh, with various kinds of uh, vulnerabilities. Again, this is an upcode. Partly it's an upcode story. And then the SQL injection is a downcode story. So let me just say, so the upcode story is, and it's a very familiar dynamic from our world, which is that tech companies want to be first to market and they want to own the space. Google wants to own search. Microsoft wanted to own the operating systems and it had owned Windows and it was gearing up to put out a better version of Windows called Windows 95. And the web comes along and they completely ignore it because they think, what? how am I going to make money off of the web? They hadn't figured out that they might actually lose money from the web. So what they end up doing is spending all their time writing this operating system. And then they come out with Windows 95 and they realize that everyone's spending time thinking about uh, Netscape and the web. And so they freak out and they switch everything. They they internet, they webify everything. And so they, so as I said before, the internet is a delivery system. If your endpoints are really weak, um, you're going to get an incredibly weak internet. And so that's what Microsoft did. They just created the worst sort of technology. And by hooking it up to the internet, they created these super spreaders. One of the things I try to explain in the book is that software is very strange. It's an anomalous product in our economy because there's really no products liability law for it. So if your toaster blows up, uh, you get a new toaster and if it causes damage, you know, they pay for your new uh, cabinets or something like that. Whereas when it comes to software, if it has security vulnerabilities in it, there's no legal liability at all. Um, and so of course, Microsoft is going to spend time building out this insecure operating system in order to be able to capture as much as it can because they don't actually are not stuck with the costs. Now, what does this mean? What this means is that the code that you're creating is not going to check for things that it ought to be checking for. 
So one of the most devastating kinds of attacks is what's called a SQL injection. SQL, SQL, stands for Structured Query Language. It's the kind of main language in which searches of databases on the internet work. I mean, so you probably use SQL when you search for Amazon for a book. And so one of the things is with SQL, SQL takes data, um, like the name of a book or the name of a user. But what one of the things about computers and which makes computer general computing possible is that computers can accept not only data, but code. That's when we download code, we're taking code and we're feeding it into our computer. What you can you can do that by putting code directly into a search box. Now, code shouldn't go in a search box. The web page should sanitize input for that. But if the web page is hastily put together because you're trying to capture market share, it won't test for whether you're putting in SQL uh, command prompts. And so if you put in code instead of data, an insecure application will run it anyway and do your bidding. And so this is just the way in which so many uh, hacks occurred in the 2000s and the 2010s where people just ruthlessly um, injecting SQL commands into um, databases. I did this when I first started hacking, I did this into the Yale Law, uh, Law Library database and it was vulnerable too. So it's a, it's a very, very powerful uh, technique. And just pausing a moment our parade through the hacks, Scott, um, I know that we both like to go to DEF CON in Vegas. Can, can you talk to, to us a bit about the kind of culture and community of hacking? Because it, it, it's, it is distinctive, isn't it? You know, there's this, this kind of social links between hackers and they have kind of common beliefs and commonalities that I think may not be apparent to, to, to people that aren't part of that world. So first of say like any community, there's going to be good people, they're going to be bad people, they're going to be people who are very generous or people who are really malicious. So that, that having been said, I will say whenever I go to DEF CON, and I hope you find this too, you know, that you have 30,000 people coming out of three different talks all going into the, um, into the hallway. Everyone is really polite. Everyone's really cooperative. Um, I like the hacking community in the, or as they like to call it, the security community, um, because it feels to me, I'm an academic, it feels very academic to me. It feels like there are standards. There are, because there are standards. There are well understood standards for what is legitimate research. There's well understood standards about how you share your research. There's a responsible disclosure. There's a real ethic, which I love, of making your information free, but not um, putting up paywalls and things like that. And so as a researcher, it's wonderful because not only do they want to talk to you um, within the space of what they're allowed to do given their work, but they really want information to be out there so that anybody who has a curiosity can get that curiosity satisfied. And if you're a curious person, it's really, really great. Bizarrely, I think that like learning about cybersecurity is kind of, I thought initially, how am I going to learn about this world? Everything's going to be secret in the NSA and, and Fancy Bear. I'm never going to be able to figure out what Fancy Bear did. But in fact, there's a giant community of people who analyze this stuff and put this um, research free on the internet. And so I, I quite love it. And just for everyone wondering, so DEF CON is a, 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 a raucous, sometimes quite messy gathering of tens of thousands of the world's best hackers that happens every year. Uh, in Las Vegas, and it's quite something not to be missed if you're ever out there. So you've mentioned them 
just now, Scott. So let's let's go to the eponymous hack then, uh, Fancy Bears. So this is that's certainly the one that I, I can't imagine that anyone listening to this passed them by. You know, this is this is something that that that, that everyone would have heard about, isn't it? And 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 I, kind of to me at least, kind of signals a kind of raising stakes, perhaps, of the kind of earlier hacks. This time, like stuff was really real and had real implications. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see like this happening with Russia, Ukraine now where President Biden was just routinely leaking. I mean, it's not leaking because it was authorized, but basically hacking into the Russians and then telling the world what they found. That's very similar to what Fancy Bear did. I mean, Fancy Bear, by um, invading the um, Democratic National Committee, exfiltrating the data, but then releasing it, that this was not standard operating procedure. Now it seems to be standard operating procedure. Let me t- say about what I found so interesting about the Fancy Bear hack. First of all, I wanted to just put it into one place and just to show people this is what happened and this is why there's really no doubt that Russia did it. Just I just wanted this the facts out there. But more importantly, and I think this is really goes again to Upcut's story, which is how did it happen? One of the things I wanted to know is like the FBI knew for about a year that Russia was in the DNC networks because another uh, hacking unit from the SVR, Cozy Bear, codenamed Cozy Bear, was already in there. And the DNC had been notified, but they were really slow in responding. And the question is, why? And I think my initial thought was incompetence on both the FBI and the DNC turns out to be not true. I think that the real story here is that espionage is legal. It's legal. All states hack each other. We, we, we often, wherever country we're from, if we get hacked, we act with outrage. And that is like absurd because we, especially the United States and the UK, Five Eyes, we are the greatest spies in the world. And so the fact that the DNC found out that they had been hacked, everyone else was hacked. So that's not a most surprising thing. From the other direction is the FBI. The FBI is half intelligence agency, half criminal law enforcement. And the DNC did not want to deal with the FBI because they were afraid that the FBI really was contacting them, not because the Russians had gotten into their network, because they wanted more information about Hillary Clinton's emails. And even though FBI prosecutors are not allowed to lie, FBI agents are allowed to lie. And the one who contacted the NC was an agent, not a prosecutor. So when you start seeing what the rules are here, everyone's acting in a very rational manner, except that Fancy Bear changes the rules by releasing the information and and, and things are ne- would not be the same again. As in everything was actually quite standard and, uh, you know, and, and predictable until the leak. The leak was the novel thing. Exactly. Everyone was like, okay, yeah, sure. They hack us, we hack them. Big deal. Okay. I think we have time for one more hack. Um, and I don't think anyone will forgive me if I missed out the killer toasters. Um, so, so tell us about killer toasters, Scott, and, 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 and I guess how hacking evolved as the internet of things began to emerge. Yeah, sure. So October 21st, 2016, I'm in New Haven. Get up, you know, as one does, checking email, Twitter, various things like that. And then all of a sudden, nothing. Can't get onto anything. I look at my my Wi-Fi. Uh, so it still seems to be working, but like I can't get onto anything. I start hearing that other people can't. So the internet goes down for large for almost the entire day, which is crazy. Like when does the internet 
go down. I mean, the entire internet in the United States, how does that go down? Um, and the um, hypothesis, and the hypothesis always is the same as a Russia did it, at Russia had been hacking, Cozy Bear had been hacking the United States. It's two weeks before the 2016 election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, so it's a big deal. And um, it turns out to be a botnet that was created by three teenagers in order to first protect, then take down Minecraft servers, Minecraft being a, a kid's game that is very extremely popular, and that they were trying to attack game servers because there's a lot of money to be made in hosting Minecraft game servers. So people had just assumed that only the intelligence agencies would have the ability to harness this firepower, but what nobody had realized was that there were these now you know tens of billions of devices yeah, our toasters, our, our uh, what used to be called DVRs, our video recorders, security cameras, they all have enormous amounts of capacity. They're hooked up to the internet. And it turns out that they're just cannons, loaded cannons waiting to be joined together by enterprising teenagers and turns it on a weak spot of the internet, the domain name system, which tra which translates human readable names like google.com to IP addresses, which are the dotted numerical ones that we can't remember. Um, and so the internet comes unusable for that day. And what I, what I tried to do is I tried to tell that story and why these kids are doing it and the way in which crime evolves, but also the kind of friendship which develops between the FBI agent, Elliot Peterson, who catches them and the boys who are caught by this former ex-Marine, but takes them under his wing and then works with them for five years. They're about to get out of probation um, in October with a catch me if you can kind of thing where the boys, uh, now young men, help the FBI catch hackers because they know it. They know how to do it from the ins inside. So it's a, it's a story, it's an exciting technical story, it's an exciting political story, but it's also, I like to think, a redemptive story about if you treat people well, maybe, you know, uh, you can do something more socially productive than to throw them in jail. Scott, stepping back from all of these hacks, you, you might say this question implies a, a false choice, but, but I'm going to give it a go. W what kind of layer would you, would you kind of say our cyber vulnerability really exists at? Because I guess sometimes you look at almost, almost like philosophical question to do with Turing's physicality principle and the very like basic nature of the computation engine and the fact that data and code are very similar. There's some very, very deep reasons that you unearth. Sometimes, you know, it's systemic, perhaps. It's to do with market forces. It's got to do with companies shipping too early, too quickly, poor, unprotected um, software, shoddy code. Often, of course, it's, it's up code, it's society. It might be human error on an individual basis. What's most to blame? First thing I want to say is the metaphysics of the world in which we live in. That is, there's no way, like, there's no way around the problem of hacking because the underlying structure of the world, the way in which symbols work, the way in which numbers work, um, some very deep principles that make physical computing devices possible, how we were able to talk to each other even though we're thousands of miles away, 
they're the very things that make hacking possible. So if you want to stop hacking, you got to stop computers. So I want to say like, you can get rid of perfect cybersecurity is impossible. It's impossible at a very deep philosophical, metaphysical level. But it's also the case that there's so many political vulnerabilities in our upcode that it's in some sense a, it's a message of hope because there's so many points within the upcode stack that we might want to address. There's so many ways of intervening. We spend all of our time throwing money at the down code, throwing more firewalls, uh, you know, longer passwords, um, stronger encryption. And, you know, that, that stuff's important, of course. But really, we should be changing the incentives that human beings have to write certain types of code and to work with the digital systems that we work with all the time. So if you could see the problem is all over the place, but the way I like to think of it, you can see the solution all over the place. There are so many things we're not doing that we could be doing that does not require the user to do anything. We are requiring our government to do things. We're requiring our organizations to do things so that they can protect us as opposed to us having to do all the work ourselves. But lastly, I guess there's some work that people can do, isn't there? I know you have a 12-week course that you're about to release, if it's not already, on cybersecurity at Yale, which will be free for everyone. Is that, is that an attempt to get people to kind of update their own upcode, I guess, around hacking and really to get their hands into the software and really understand how it works? Absolutely. So, I mean, the reason why we did the course was, this I, I've taught the course three times. I'm going to do it the fourth time at, at Yale Law School with students who have no background in computers, except for being able to, you know, send an email or browse the internet. And I thought it's, you know, first of all, for law students, if they want to go into the tech space, they really should understand how the, how the technology works. But the reason why we put it out for everyone is number one, you know, like, like hackers, I like that information be free. And so I, I like putting that information out there. But, but more importantly, you know, we live in an information society and it's just not great that we don't know how it works. It makes us uh, worse citizens because we don't know what government is doing, uh, makes us bad users in the sense that insecure users, because we may do things that are leave us vulnerable or more vulnerable. In general, I just think it's, I think people, at least I did, enjoy learning about this thing that they see all the time. They read about it all the time and they have no idea what they're talking about, it's not that hard. And if somebody would just explain it in a hands-on way, also do it in a responsible way, the thought was that we would get you know, more informed citizens and safer users. Well, on that call, we will have to bring things to a pause. So we have to learn how it works, everyone. That's the key thing for us to do. That was Scott Shapiro, author of Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, available now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Carmilla. Thanks, everyone, so much, as ever, for joining us. Thank you so much, Carl. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next and who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com.